1971, in an East Los Angeles neighborhood, a group of young Mexican-American artists hatched a plan for a unique artistic act. We decided to create a, an anti-war statement, anti-Vietnam War statement, by essentially recreating the Stations of the Cross. This is from a documentary about the Osco Art Collective. And uh, I played uh, Jesus Christ carrying the cross. Uh, Gronk was Pontius Pilate. I decided to, to dress up as sort of a, a, a zombie-like altar boy wearing a, an actual animal skull on top of my head. We basically paraded down Whittier Boulevard to the uh, recruiting station and sort of collected people as we walked people just started to follow us. Before you knew it, we were all heading towards the Marine Recruiting Station where we leaned up the cross, dumped all of our costumes and the popcorn, and uh, we left it there so it essentially blockaded the recruitment center. So for that particular day, there would be no more Chicanos joining the Marines and going off to Vietnam. This act of artistic defiance and protest towards the American government's war in Vietnam was among the first of many by OSCO in the early 1970s. This group's public artistic performances exemplified how many young Chicanos were finding new and relatively rebellious ways to resist oppression and systemic racism during this period. And that word Chicano became a new term for young Mexican-Americans to express pride in their own shared cultural and community identity and not without some political nuance. Okay, well, this is Nuevas Voces, a podcast by Artists de Mexico in Utah. This is episode 18. And in this episode, we're talking about what it means to be Chicano or Chicana and what the Chicano movement did for Mexican-American art. This, no doubt, could be a very long conversation, but today we're keeping it focused on the Utah perspective with a few voices from our local Chicano community. I'll let them introduce themselves. Okay, I'm Gloria Gonzalez-Cook. <clears throat> and um, I grew up in Salt Lake City. I grew up on the West Side, went to West High, and went to the University of Utah. But when I went to the university, I studied anthropology. My focus was Mesoamerica, so that was what I uh, studied there. But I was at the university in the 1970s when a lot of the Chicano movement was starting and or had started, and. Um, there was a lot more activity at the U, a lot more Hispanic people than I'd ever seen before or met before. So that was, um, that was really new for me. My name is uh, Fanny Guadalupe Blauer. I am from Mexico City, raised and born. I have been in this country for uh, 22 years now, but I had all my education and childhood and everything in Mexico. So. Okay. My name is Chris Macias. Um, I was uh, born in California, but I was raised in Utah. I like to actually identify as Utano. Um, I feel like that speaks more to my experience. But I am e either a first or a second generation uh, son of immigrants. Uh, depending on which sociologist you talk to, they might tell you it's a little bit different. But uh, that's me. I, uh, I'm actually, I actually grew up in Kearns, Utah. I went to the University of Utah for my bachelor's degree and now currently my master's degree as well. Um, right now I work for TRIO programs, which is a college access program for high school students. Um, I am a member of the Salt Lake City chapter of the Brown Berets, um, and I'm also serving on the board for the Chicano Chicano Scholarship Fund, so I do work directly with this community quite a bit. Uh, hello, my name is Luis Lopez, and I am originally from Santana, California. Uh, I'm a transplant to Utah, so I was brought here at the age of 17 
uh, my senior year of high school actually, so that contributed a lot to my experience and my self-identification as a Chicano. Uh, I actually also work with a trio upper bound at the University, University of Utah with Chris. Uh, and just three weeks ago, joined the same master's program as him as well. So uh, I bother him a lot. We have a lot of these discussions, and, uh, and that's also why I'm very excited that he's here today. Okay. And then I'm going to swing this over to Jorge. Hi, my name is Jorge Rodriguez. I, uh, I am the program director for Artes de Mexico in Utah. I am also the host for the Spanish radio show for Park City's KPCW Cada Domingo. Oh, and then there's me. I'm Ross Chambliss. I'm a white guy who grew up in Salt Lake City, and I'm grateful to be invited to produce this podcast about Mexican art and history. And although these are subjects that I haven't until recently known anything about, and I don't speak Spanish, and I've only been across the border to Mexico a couple times, this is a chance for me, along with you, to learn, to get beyond the misconceptions, the stereotypes, or the versions of the history that we seldom get to hear. Anyway, we will talk more about the art, but first, I want to know, what exactly does Chicano mean? How does a person define his or herself as Chicano or Chicana? I think as somebody who um, started hearing the term for the first time and in the 70s, it was somebody not born outside of the United States, uh, because that was important, because I'm also the daughter of, of uh, immigrant and immigrant grandparents. And so... It was somebody born here, but it was also a way to try to unite Hispanics. So it, I think when it first started, they wanted it to apply to everybody, whether you were Puerto Rican or Cuban or anybody who, was, who had grown up here, lived here, and we all went through similar struggles, and that was the idea of how to, why to call ourselves something other than Hispanic or Mexican-American or Spanish or whatever. Um, for me, I mean, I think the, the term Chicano, it really varies. Uh, the definition varies depending on who you ask. Um, for me, it was more of the recognition of my indigeneity, although I can't pinpoint it exactly where it comes from. I know it's, it's in me, and so I didn't identify with terms um, like Hispanic or Latino, although I will use Latino for solidarity, uh, depending on the situation. Uh, Chicano was, was different. It spoke more to me, and so... Uh, for me, it, I guess it, I would define it as um, an American of Mexican descent with a non-Anglo view of myself is how I, yeah, how I see it. So, uh, like Luis said, you know, it, it can vary from person to person, from community to community. Um, the reason that I choose to identify as Chicano is because <clears throat> I think that identity speaks to my own experience, um, which is somebody who grew up in this country within these borders, understanding that, that I grew up bilingual, speak, speaking two languages. Uh, understanding that sometimes I felt like in certain spaces I would fit in in a certain language or a certain identity, a certain look, and in certain spaces I did not, right? And so that's kind of a balance of the two. But also Chicano to me means kind of existing in that third space. Um, a lot of people th see it negatively as like, oh, ni da aquí, ni da allá, right? Not from here nor from there, even though my family does come from a Latin American country, they come from Mexico. 
Um, and, and I actually do know some of the connection that goes to, to my own indigenous background. So from Jalisco, Mexico, there's a group called the Cuisillos Nation. And I know that I have roots in that as well. So I can trace it at least to, to that extent. I don't really know too much of it. I personally do not have the, the full connection, unfortunately, because of the generational gap and the, the lineage that was here. But to me, Chicano really embraces that idea of, you know, we didn't cross the border, the border crossed us. And so because we're on this side is a reason that I say I'm Yutano because I'm for Utah, but that doesn't necessarily encapsulate everything that I am. So Chicano, again, has different variations, but for me, it kind of encapsulates all of that. You marched on Easter Sunday To the capital you come You fought for union wages And your fight has just begun <laughs> For me, it's very different. I grew up in Mexico uh, I came here at the age of 22, and I grew up with uh, listening that word in a very negative connotation. And not well, there were two aspects. You know, the Chicanos are the the hard workers in the U.S., but also you don't want to be a Chicano because a Chicano is someone who doesn't really have a national identity, as claiming maybe being Mexican, but not really because they speak they live in the U.S. but they don't really speak good Spanish. <laughs> so I, uh, when I moved to to the U.S. 22 years ago, uh, people will ask me, and I remember being. No, I am not Chicano. I am Mexican. I don't even know what Chicano is. Now it's different because I know the culture of the of, of you know the Chicano people. So actually, when I go to Mexico, I'm like, no, you don't know what you're saying. You don't know what a Chicano is because there's a lot of you know social context into this definition. But if you go to Mexico City and you identify as Chicano, it might be like, oh, someone without identity. Uh, yeah, see, I, I've lived most of my life in the U.S., but I lived in Mexico for a few years, and I actually identify with uh, everybody's definition. Um, for me, growing up, Chicano was a bad word. It was something that somebody called me uh, as a way to make themselves superior. It, and it would be either, you know, uh, my Mexican side of the family or acquaintances who would be like, oh, so you're a Chicano, and then there'd be kind of like a little jab with that. But uh, as I grew up and I started, you know, learning a little bit more about the history, I'm using it now. I identify as Chicano as a way to take back that side of my 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 culture because, just like uh, uh, just like it was said before, I am from here and I am from there. I don't look at it as I'm not from either place. I'm from both places, and I do hold that third place because this is who I am. And so, yeah, that's that's how I see it. As you can see, there are different ways to understand the meaning of the term Chicano. But where does the idea originate? This is from a PBS documentary about the Chicano movement. It became clear that without political power, Mexican-Americans would remain second-class citizens. And we're poor, man. I mean, we're poor. And nobody wants to do nothing about it. You still kissing the Democratic Party, thinking they're going to save you, and they ain't going to do it. In a small South Texas town, a new political party took shape that threatened to change the political landscape of America. Now, these are Chicano people here. You've never met us. We're not in the dictionary. It's a brand new ballgame. You're going to have to relearn all your stereotypes and all your myths because we are about to begin creating new ones, tough ones, and great ones. And I suggest you learn fast if you want to match us. 
As the nation watched, Chicanos took on the most challenging quest of the Mexican-American civil rights movement. The Chicano civil rights movement was an extension of the Mexican-American civil rights movement of the 1960s. In many ways, it could be compared to the black power movement that extended from the African-American civil rights movement. The Chicano movement was broad in the sense that it involved efforts to give farm workers more rights, to resist the disparity of Chicano young men being sent to the Vietnam War to die. It was also about enhancing educational opportunities and voting rights to Mexican-Americans and to combat negative stereotypes of Hispanics in mass media. In the late 1960s and early 70s, the movement was simmering in parts of the U.S., like Texas and California, where many Mexican-Americans lived, but for those living in Utah, well, maybe not so much. Here's Gloria. Things didn't happen here the way they did nationally. You know, we didn't have big demonstrations of, about the war and things like that. But um, as uh, people came in, Hispanic or Chicanos came in from California, for instance, they were bringing their experience. And um, also, of course, um, Cesar Chavez in California and the Farm Workers Union, uh, all of that had a lot of effect on all of us. And uh, the Teatro Campesino, which traveled around the United States, uh, you know, we were very aware of what was happening nationally. So that's how it, it started to grow, and it, and it did start to grow here, and people began to identify themselves. And I, I find it interesting uh, about the idea of the indigenous looking at, at it as I'm an, you know, um, I'm from the India. I mean, I always knew I was mestizo or, you know, part Indian, and um, I was very proud of that. But, but a lot of the people here who were also part of that movement were people from like Colorado, New Mexico. They called themselves Spanish Americans. They did not identify as indigenous on any level, but they were also part of that because they grew up here. They were living here. And um, it doesn't matter that their ancestors were living in the, like um, Chris was saying, they crossed the border, crossed them, they didn't cross the border. They still had that American experience of being people who were uh, exploited and people who, who weren't really seen as full citizens. And that, so their experience was similar enough, and that's where the Chicano was supposed to be a uniting a name for, for everybody. Hoy nuestros hermanos filipinos han tomado un gran paso hacia la lucha por la libertad y la dignidad this is from the 2014 biographical film about Cesar Chavez, starring Michael Peña. It was actually Filipino-Americans who initiated the first farm worker strike in 1965 in Delano, California. But by cooperating and uniting, the Filipinos, the Chicanos, and other groups formed the powerful United Farm Workers Organization. Chicano leaders led the boycott that resulted in the collective bargaining agreement that guaranteed field workers had the right to unionize. Yeah, just, just one thing I wanted to add as, as we bring up, uh, you know, the Chicano Civil Rights Movement, we of course always bring up Cesar Chavez. Uh, it's crucial we bring up Dolores Huerta as well, right? Um, because uh, a lot of times Cesar becomes the face, but we cannot forget the women that were also part of this movement. So um, definitely appreciative of Dolores Huerta and Cesar Chavez.
Another group that emerged from the Chicano movement in the late 1960s were the Brown Berets. It's a group that you still hear about today. Chris Macias here has had some involvement. So, so the Brown Berets um, are kind of a response to a lot of the things that were already mentioned, right? So one of the things that, um, so like uh, Gloria mentioned, Chicano became kind of this unifying term, even though at first, like Jorge mentioned, it was kind of this neg- negative connotation, right? And it comes from um, being called indigenous used to be negative, right? Because you weren't, uh, you, you didn't fit that Eurocentric view um, that those would put on you, or you didn't fit that Anglo view, et cetera. So sometimes it, it kind of came from both ways. But <clears throat> it came from the response to the creation of the word Hispanic. So the word Hispanic is actually a creation from the American government to try and encompass everybody from that end, right? So I, everybody who looks a certain way, who speaks a certain way, everybody who's not white, who's for Southwestern, et cetera, at the time, uh, would become Hispanic. But then, like Gloria said, Chicano became the response from the people themselves saying, well, if you're going to put us all together in one word, we're actually going to reclaim this, this word as ours, right? Um, and so the Brown Berets kind of sprouted from that very philosophy, saying we're going to reclaim our own cultures and we're going to be kind of in your face about it. <laughs> and so while the, 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 a lot of schools were actually becoming more educated, educated themselves on what it is to be a certain identity, what it means to be Chicano, Chicana, um, or what it is to just be existing in this country at the time in the late 50s and 60s, um, and what that experience was, <clears throat> um, a few individuals would actually receive that education. Education meaning access to that system that we now understand today, the institutions of, of going to college and all of that. Um, those few individuals started connecting with high school students to say, we're going to show our own communities who we are, what we are. And so the Brown Berets came from a model of actually Puerto Rican descent. So I don't know if anybody's familiar with the Young Lords, but in Puerto Rico, they started wearing berets like the military and said, we are the young lords who will be fighting for the independence of our people, our indigenous nations, the Taino nations, and for our own uh, statehood, if you will. Today, of course, Puerto Rico is still up for a debate on whether they want to be a state or a colony or a territory and all of that. <clears throat> but that's that's another podcast. <laughs> so <clears throat> um, the young lords were also sort of what inspired the Black Panther movement at the time. And so the Black Panthers in the 1960s, led by Huey Newton, um, and others were were kind of being that that militant community view, right? Saying we're no longer going to depend on, depend on government, we're no longer going to depend on education, but we're going to do this ourselves. And so they started creating their own networks, started feeding their own people, started creating communities, started vaccinating their own people, just making something of themselves. And at the same time, pushing the limits of what the quote unquote black community was supposed to be doing at the time. You know, again, eighties and sixties. And because of their success, because of that civil rights. Uh, push and motivation, the Brown Berets also came to be and said, well, we're going to do the same thing for the Chicano movement. So it wasn't necessarily that one group is copying another. It's that all of these sentiments were coming together and there was a lot of different um, pu- push to, to do this from different communities because we're all at the time suffering from you know, systematic poverty. We're all looking into lack of access to education and we're all looking into just many different systems that are, you could call it, oppressing our communities. And so the Brown Berets are one response alongside other student groups like Mecha or like LULAC or uh, other different things that, that came to mind. So, um, so the Brown Berets became known as this almost paramilitant or militant group just because they were, again, pushing the boundaries of what it is that they could do within the law or within education. Um, and they also gave our community a uniform. So in the civil rights movement, you put on a Brown Beret, you put on a you know khaki shorts, khaki pants. Uh, and boots, you know, whenever we go out into the community and actually wear that, we call it, we're going to get suited and booted, you know, because we know 
that it gives that community a uniform and we stand out. So when we have people, especially nowadays, like white supremacists or other groups who dress alike or who still keep uh, some of those traditions of like the KKK movement and you, you, you can identify them very easily, this is a response to that. Chris helps us to get a uniquely current perspective on what it means to be a brown beret. Gloria can offer a perspective from an older generation. I think Chris was right on with what he said. I just wanted to add, um, from my generation, okay, we were the children of the World War II vets. So I have two uncles that both served World War II, one in the Army, one in the Navy. Uh, my one uncle spent 19, the summer of 1945 in the Pacific. They came home from the Army. They fought for this country, and they expected all the doors to be open that were open to every other vet. Uh, my one uncle started college. The other one already had a family, so he went to work. But what they found out, that the doors weren't that open. And so that, I believe, was part of what happened to, the, to now their children and my generation. They saw this. They saw that their dads were heroes. But they came back, and they still were the, the stupid Mexicans. They were still these these men who could not achieve what everybody else could. And I, that was, there was resentment there. And so you had these younger kids who were going, we've done everything. We've done everything we're supposed to do. My dad did everything he was supposed to do. And he came back and it, nothing had changed. So that, I get, I get emotional. But that was one, I know it's a small aspect. But when you're talking about the history of why this would even happen, why would people start thinking this way or feeling this way? It, it was because of what, uh, you know, Hispanics have been in every war in this country, even the Civil War. People don't realize that. And yet, here we are. I've heard people refer to the Mexicans as the new immigrants. Like, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? We've been here for, you know, 300 years. Ramiro G. Gonzalez. What does the uh, G stand for, Ramiro? Huh? Gonzalez? The negative or goofy portrayals of Latinos in the media was also a catalyst for the Chicano movement in the late 60s. You have the images on TV that, you know, at least here in Salt Lake, okay, we only had three stations. And so they were the commercial stations. But you had um, a program featuring uh, an actor named Pedro Gonzalez Gonzalez. And he was basically a clown. I mean, he was a servant, um, but he was this little guy, and he was always, I don't even remember, I was very young at the time, but he would get in trouble. Could you give me that once more? Uh, my father was Gonzalez before he married my mother, and my mother was Gonzalez before she married my father. Well, they were crazy to get married. Hey, look, Cisco. And then you had the Cisco kid and his sidekick, Pancho. And Pancho uh, was played by Leo Carrillo, who was a Californian and an old, from an old California family. He was a very well-educated, um, very uh, sophisticated man, playing, uh, a, a, you know, the sidekick, the, the stupid 
sidekick uh, who, who spoke broken English. But, you know, he, they would be saying, okay, we're going to go over here. And he'd say, okay, let's went, you know, things like that. Disco is right. Caballo, run around, have a good time, have lots of fun, and mind your own business like Cisco don't never do. <laughs> and then you had the Frito Bandito. The Frito-Lay put out a commercial, and there's this little guy wearing the bandolero, and he's, you know, he's a revolutionary, and he's this little guy, but he's the, he's the image on the Frito package, or he was the commercial. Those were the images that we had of Mexicans. And then here in um, Salt Lake, or here in Utah, um, it was an insult to be called a Mexican. Uh, if you were Spanish, then you were okay. You were European. But I would have people, and this happened into my adulthood, who would ask me, are you Spanish? And I would say, no, I'm of Mexican descent. And they would say, oh, I thought you were, but I didn't want to insult you. And then I'd wait for them to figure out they'd insulted me. And never, no, it just would go over their head. But this, this was the image. Mexicans were the dirty Mexicans across the railroad tracks, and Spanish was the better people. So it was, it was the images that were portrayed commercially, as well as this almost, um, I don't know, in, intuitional, if you will, sort of idea of who Mexicans were. Uh, and, you know, I mean, I'm a little bit in between the generations. Uh, growing up as a kid, you know, you see this in cartoons. I mean, you can see icons like Speedy Gonzalez. You see Bugs Bunny making, you know, he'd dress up as a caricature of what a Mexican would be with, you know, the big sombrero and the, you know, the, the rebozo or the, uh, you know, the, um, the poncho. And, and I mean, just the way that these depictions were made, this was what it was to be a Mexican, more or less. And so I also, you know, people would ask me if I was Spanish, but I didn't understand that. And it took me a long time to figure that stuff out. Uh, but even, you know, the stereotypical depiction of what a Mexican is, is meant to be kind of a, a derogatory idea. Uh, the, the depiction of the lazy Mexican laying down, asking for... for um, for money. Uh, I remember in a movie that I used to love as a kid, um, it was like The Naked Gun. There was a scene where the character, um, they, they dress up in a costume as, as uh, mariachis and he gets knocked out and he's on the floor wearing the, the Mexican sombrero and somebody had left a hat and they were putting money into his cup. And my father said something like, yeah, they're always like throwing shade at us. And I was like, wait, I guess that does make sense. They're, they're actually, that's a depiction of a quote-unquote Mexican right there. And so, yeah, I, this sort of thing grew up. Uh, and if I can go a little bit further, uh, as a kid, I've always been a huge fan of superheroes. And one of the biggest shows that I used to watch was, you know, the super friends. You had Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, et cetera, et cetera. But I always wanted to identify with somebody, and they had these depictions of horrible stereotypes of, of different ethnicities. They had the samurai, they had the black lightning, um, Apache chief, and uh, of course El Dorado. And now as an adult, I look back at them, I wonder how they thought this would be a good idea. All of these would be extremely offensive if they tried to do something like that. But I remember looking back and thinking, I want to like El Dorado, but he's terrible. He's not, he's not a good superhero. And so as, as a kid, 
you don't have something to look up to and it, it just kind of permeates into the whole culture. By the early 70s, Chicano activist artists like the Osco Art Collective found new and unique and controversial ways to express themselves. The members of Osco came up with what they called the walking mural. These are Osco members Willie Heron and Patsy Valdez talking several years ago about one particular project they put on after the East L.A. Christmas Parade was canceled after the 1970 Chicano Moratorium riots. Muralism was being approached in a very traditional way. We thought we would take it a step further and uh, with that idea decided to just sort of uh, have myself wear the mural and walk with it down the street so it could be a, a sort of a moving work of art. And we did shock people. The policemen followed us. We had to have bodyguards. But it was, I think it was a great success. Traditional murals reflecting the values of Chicano communities were also increasingly popping up in Mexican-American neighborhoods around that time. Here's Chris Macias again. Uh, well, just on a very foundational level, <clears throat> I feel that, especially in, in the late 60s and 70s when these murals were becoming a lot more uh, popular and more prevalent in our, in our communities, is because we didn't see ourselves anywhere else. <laughs> and when I say we, I just mean generational memory, right? I obviously wasn't alive at that point, I'm from the late 80s. So, <laughs> But <clears throat> what this means is um, it's still somewhat relevant today where we do not see Chicanos, Chicanos represented in the media. And if they are represented, they're, they're mis disproportionately in a negative view, you know. And so this is one way to kind of showcase ourselves in public view. Like, here's who we are. I'm going to paint myself as I, as I think I am, as I see myself, how I think I should be, or in an extravagant fashion so that I can get that attention that I'm not getting anywhere else. And so this was both a form of showing our presence and both of a form of communication. <clears throat> you know, when you travel through through a neighborhood, for example, like in East LA, uh, where some of these murals are depicted, you would then see who's in that community and you would talk to each other via other people's murals, via other people's art. So just, just on that level, it was a, just kind of a visual representation, a visual statement. Luis Lopez says that still today in an East LA neighborhood, one of Osco's most notable murals can be found on a wall. You can see a photo of it on our website. Well, well one thing I think, there, there's a couple common themes when we see Chicano art as a whole, but especially in the 70s, is just as there were many responses to what was happening in the country, the art is, art is also the same way. And so it was putting the Chicano struggle, the pain, raw and unfiltered and in your face. Right, and so even with this Oscar um, mural, um, you know, you see faces screaming, you see the militarization of police in these images, and that put the reality for a lot of these Chicanos, uh, you know, as a front page to the community. I mean, this, this mural is on a wall that people walk by, people drive by, so you see it and you're going to get a reaction, right? And that's exactly what I feel that they were, that was their intent. 3,000 years of civilization, oh man. Maya, Totec, Aztec. 3,000 years of civilization to wind up in LA. Our people live down this shore. We'll continue this conversation about what it means to be Chicano or Latino in Utah in coming episodes. 
You can see some of the works of art and interviews and video footage from some of some of the works we discussed in this episode on the website and home for this podcast, artistmexut.org. Also, please share your own thoughts with us. Did you experience the Chicano movement in the late 60s and early 70s? What do you think was the lasting impact? Also, what about the Brown Berets then and now? Do you think the organization continues to be effective in looking out for Latino, Latina, or Chicano, Chicana interests? And what notable Chicano murals have you seen or want to share? What messages or ideas do those murals say about the larger community? You can share your impressions with us in the comments section on our website. Thank you to Fanny Blauer, Gloria Gonzalez-Cook, Chris Macias, Luis Lopez, and Jorge Rodriguez for their thoughtful insight and commentary throughout this episode. The music you heard in this episode comes from Willy Bobo, Richie Valens, Los Lobos, Latin Playboys, Malo, Chicano Batman, Daniel Valdez, Santo and Johnny, Gustavo Santaolalla, Calexico, Antonio Pinto. And this last track is by the band Los Angelinos. This podcast is made possible by a grant from Utah Humanities. Thanks to KPCW in Park City for the studio space. I'm Ross Chambliss. This is Nuevas Fosas. Spray your emblem. Go ahead, white fence. Paint your coat of arms. Bato loco. Damn right. Yes, batos locos. Die or fight. Go ahead, dreamer. Yes, breathe your appetite. Go ahead, Clover, sign your treaty by the look ahead out of A treaty that was supposed to guarantee equality. Go ahead, Vatos Locos, children of Aslan. Spray your metallic blood to all the walls. Come down. Gonzalo. Say, I'll end.